0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the Notebooks Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Robert Wilson, Professor of Philosophy at La Trobe University. His new book, The Eugenic Mind Project, is just out from the MIT Press. For most of us, eugenics, or the science of improving the human stock, is a thing of the past, commonly associated with Nazi Germany and government efforts to promote a pure Aryan race. But this view is incorrect. Even in California, for example, sterilization of those deemed mentally defective was performed up to 1977, In his new book, Wilson critically considers the type of thinking, which he calls eugenic thinking, that drives eugenic sterilization practices, the quest for human improvement that derives from negatively marked differences between better and worse kinds of humans. Wilson also recounts his research with living survivors of these practices. The book is an eye-opening, philosophically informed discussion of how eugenic thinking is found in prenatal genetic testing, selective abortion, discrimination of those with disabilities, and immigration policy. And he also considers why eugenic thinking is so persistent. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Robert Wilson. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation about the Eugenic Mind Project. Before we get into the book itself, maybe you can give our listeners a bit of background about yourself. I mean, I know your work as a philosopher of mind, and, you know, this is, is somewhat... Not, I wouldn't say it's off track because the name of the book is, you know, The Eugenic Mind Project, but maybe you can say a bit about how you, your background as a philosopher and how you came to write this particular book.
1: Yeah, sure. I was a graduate student at Cornell University where I worked with Sidney Shoemaker in the philosophy of mind, as you've intimated, and really for about the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I mainly worked in philosophy of mind on individualism about the mind and mental representation, computationalist approaches to the mind, uh, did a fair bit of empirical stuff in developmental psychology with the developmental psychologist, Frank Kyle. And then as I branched out into uh, the philosophy of biology, I started to develop an interest in uh, teaching uh, in uh, a subject called biology and society. And it was in that context that I first started to teach a few weeks of material on eugenics, and that was the, the sort of segue uh, into that from you know being a fairly traditional analytic philosopher of mind with a naturalistic bent, interested in empirical material, shifting into the philosophy of science, specializing in biology, and then thinking about the social context in which biological knowledge and technology develops and, and gets deployed.
0: Um, okay, and I mean one of one of the things that you note at the at the start is you you took a job at the University of Alberta, right? Um, and it was your experience there. Yeah, I started that you-
1: in Alberta around around two thousand, and it was in there. You know, this initial connection to teaching material on eugenics took on a new sort of life. I was literally in the middle of teaching a class where I had two weeks in the in the course that was on eugenics. One week's on how bad the Nazis were and a second week on how almost as bad the Americans were because, as you probably know, uh, eugenics was uh, there was eugenics sterilization legislation that was in place in 32 US states. And the Nazis actually used those laws as their models for their own sterilization laws starting in the 1930s leading up into the, into the Holocaust. But what I wasn't really prepared for was that there was a Canadian history that I had no idea of whatsoever, and it was located very close at home. There were students in my class whose living relatives had been sterilized under a eugenic sterilization law in Alberta that was in place right through until 1972. And so that was Tuesday's class. Um, There was a little bit of a learning curve they had to go through between Tuesday and Thursday for the next class. I went back to the department. I said, hey, (laughs) folks, tell me about this eugenic uh, history in Alberta. I had no idea. And they said, oh, no, we know all about it. I said, how come? And they said, well, because the founding chair of our department, who was also the longest-serving provost in the university's history, John McAachran, was the chairman of the Eugenics Board for most of its history right through until 1965, starting in 1928. And um, this double edge, the fact that there was actual active sterilization going on, so there were living members of our community who had been sterilized and were still with us, that was shocking. They were literally related to uh, the the students I was teaching. Uh, And the other side that there was this, what I, in the book, go on to talk about under the uh, heading of institutional complicity, there was this institutional complicity in the very department that I had just become a member of. Um, though that dual aspect really embedded me a lot closer to this eugenic history and, and made it a live issue for me in a way in which you know not being there would not have done.
0: Um, yeah, so let me, let's, I mean, one of the important aspects, as you just mentioned, is the fact that eugenics and and eugenic thinking, as you put it, is, is a contemporary issue. It's not just, you know, Nazi Germany or somehow in the past. Um, but before we, to get to there, um, maybe you can first, you know, tell us, you know, how, what is genetics, eugenics, how do we define that, um, uh, what you mean by standpoint, standpoint eugenics, uh, which is which is another aspect of the book um, that you draw on uh, from, I believe, standpoint epistemology, um, and then the general the general idea of of eugenic thinking, as you as you put it, um, and and also maybe finally what why you call the book the eugenic mind project?
1: Sure. So there's a lot packed into that question, um, but so let me try and take things in the order that seems uh, manageable to me. So when people think about eugenics, they often think about it in one or more of three ways. They can think about it as a social movement. And when they think about it as a social movement, they typically think of it as operating for about an 80 year period from roughly 1865, 1870 through until the end of the second world war in 1945. Um, And uh, it was a social movement that was aimed at human improvement. And this brings us to, to the second way of thinking about eugenics is in terms of its ideology or the set of ideas that made it up. And I typically think about it as a movement that's, involved, that's aimed at human improvement, but not any kind of human improvement. It's intergenerational human improvement. And it does, tries to achieve that in a particular kind of way. It tries to achieve it by changing the composition of people in future generations. It recognizes that the people in the current generation, the characteristics they have are likely to influence the characteristics that people have in the next generation, whether it's through a strict notion of biological uh, heredity or some broader notion. And so often intervening on people in the current generation will provide a way to influence that composition. But the crucial idea is that it's this intergenerational change that's brought about by changing the composition And typically by thinking of there being sort of more desirable or better kinds of people for future generations uh, as opposed to less desirable or worse kinds of people uh, to stock uh, the future of the human species. And um, eugenics also makes use of the latest science and technology to do this. And it did from the outset, from the time that Francis Galton coined the term eugenics in 1883. And so sometimes Galton himself even talked about eugenics as a science. So whether you think about it as a science or as drawing heavily on science and technology, I think that's an important part of the conception of uh, eugenics historically and why I think it's still one of the reasons why I think it's still relevant uh, today. So that's a a kind of characterization of, of eugenics you can also, so you can pick it out in terms of being a social movement, lasting a certain period of time. Uh, you can pick it out in terms of this set of uh, ideas about intergenerational uh, improvement uh, over over time. Or you can pick it out partly in terms of the sets of practices that it endorsed. And the, the most uh, prominent sort of practice that comes to mind when people think about eugenics is that of eugenic sterilization. I've already intimated it in telling the story of how I got interested in it and talking about there being Eugenic sterilization laws in the majority of U.S. states, and it turned out in two Canadian provinces, of which one was Alberta, the other was British uh, Columbia. And in fact, there were eugenic sterilization laws. These were laws that authorized the sterilization of certain kinds of people. That is, those who were deemed to be unfit or the worst kinds of worst kinds of, of people uh, to stop the future generations. And, and they were in uh, many countries across uh, the world not just in North America so there was a, a you know literally a worldwide eugenics movement if you think about the social movement uh, that lasts uh, for about 80 80 years ending with the uh, end of the Second World War so that's about eugenics and how to think about it eugenic thinking and this brings us partly to how I thought about things myself as I, I, I went on and it did link up a little bit more with my Past interest in the philosophy of mind than I had initially anticipated. Um, I became interested in. I mean, I mean, there is an interesting question. You know, if you're a philosopher, you're interested in where conceptual boundaries are and how you tighten up your categories and think about various, how various things are related to one another and what falls under various concepts and so on. And and I have an interest in that in terms of well, what counts as eugenics, strictly speaking. But I'm I'm really not that. It, <laughs> that's not the focus of my interest. I'm interested in the kinds of thinking that underlies this set of ideas, this social movement, and the sorts of practices that I think are not merely a matter of the past now, new sorts of practices that have emerged in light of new uh, scientific knowledge and, and, and uh, uh, technology over time. And so I'm interested in this way of thinking about human improvement that starts with this distinction between better and worse kinds of people. And uh, on the lookout a little bit for its new sorts of uh, manifestations, what sometimes people refer to as eugenics, which is a truncated, you know, a term that truncates new eugenics. And so the eugenic mind is just means, it's a fancy way, I guess, of saying uh, this eugenic thinking. And the project part of the title of the book is this sort of, you know, systematic. Set of, a set of systematic sorts of attempts to engage in eugenic thinking and, it's, and, it, and the ways in which it manifests itself uh, even now. Uh, and obviously that was brought home for me by my Alberta experience, but um, just in terms of there being you know, survivors of eugenics, who, a number of whom I became quite close friends with uh, over the last 15 years or so in Alberta, uh, but also in terms of looking at new things that were developing, new cases of sterilization, even when there weren't explicit eugenic laws that authorize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to be coming on again. Um, questions about how we thought about disability and human variation. Um, how do we think about that? That's part of what I call the eugenic mind. So I have a couple of chapters in the book uh, about human variation and the idea of subnormalcy and pl- the role it plays in regulating how we view certain kinds of people. And so there's a connection, I think, there with uh, racialized kind of thinking, mm-hmm. with how we think about uh, immigration, for example, because eugenics doesn't need to operate through biological means. I mean, sterilization is a particular kind of biological intervention in the body. Um, manipulating genes in various kinds of ways is another biological sort of intervention, a way to achieve a eugenic goal, or it can be, uh, but you could achieve those goals in other means through social policies, and people historically did. They did it through immigration restriction policies, where there were certain kinds of immigrants who were deemed to be less worthy, in some sense, uh, to stop future generations, and there was a sort of fear about the flooding of the, you know, the white nation Uh, Mm -hmm. In America, for example, in Australia as well, there was a policy that was referred to as the White Australia Policy. It wasn't usually thought of as explicitly eugenic. But now I'm back in Australia after a long time uh, away, I'm finding quite a bit of resonance in applying this idea of eugenics and this eugenic mind, (laughs) eugenic thinking, uh, to think about those sorts of debates, past debates, and I think ongoing debates about immigration and the kind of nations that we build and the kinds of people that constitute them over time.
0: Okay. Oh, and then standpoint uh, uh, eugenics, because that was that was an important aspect as well.
1: Yeah. So the book was originally called uh, Standpoint Eugenics. And the, the basic sort of idea was trying to look at eugenics and this eugenic thinking from the standpoint of those who survived its history as a social uh, movement. So that was the connection with working with eugenic survivors and building uh, oral histories uh, with them uh, together in a, in a large-scale project that we undertook uh, over about a six-year period uh, in the early 2010s. Um, and uh, the, the basic sort of idea was that although you can have um, – there are some – what's the best way to put this you know there are some people who are better positioned to understand certain kinds of phenomena than others i mean that's pretty much a a truism but the flip in standpoint theory i think is the idea that some of the people who are most the people who are most oppressed by a certain kind of system even though they're disadvantaged in all sorts of ways because of that oppression are the people who are actually best positioned to understand at least certain aspects of that system so just to take a a basic sort of example, if you're trying to understand how bullying works in schools, you can adopt, if you like, the standpoint of people from the outside uh, or teachers or parents or people who are making school policy. Uh, but there's an aspect to that, the set of processes that make up bullying, that can really be best understood by the people who are subject to it. <laughs> and if you really want to understand that process, you're going to have to draw on their kinds of insights. and. So I think this this idea is at the heart of uh, what I call standpoint eugenics. And, and as you've said, it's not the idea of standpoint theory is not my idea. It's a long idea that's best known perhaps in, amongst philosophers and, and people working with social sciences and humanities through feminist standpoint theory. So if you want to understand a phenomena that have to do with sexualization and, and gender oppression, you need to be able to absorb, take in, adopt uh, the perspectives of those who are most affected by practices like harassment or uh, rape or sexual assault or uh, forms of gender uh, exclusion. They would typically be women. So, you know, that's why it's part of feminist standpoint theory and that idea itself draws on a longer tradition in uh, Marxist theory uh, in uh, political philosophy, uh, the idea that you could best understand the operation of an economic system like capitalism by adopting the perspective of uh, the workers, the people who are most directly exploited by the economic system that you're trying to understand the operation of. And that was an insight that went back to the work of Karl Marx.
0: Um, so let me let me ask about the, the, the moral aspect, you know, before we you know, I want to get to this idea of, you know, human variation and the, and sort of the thinking that goes, goes behind as behind eugenic practices. Um, uh, you know, we, we, talk about eugenics. It's associated often, as you mentioned with, with Nazi Germany, um, uh, which in itself, you know, always raises flags about immoral practices in general. Um, But what what is it about eugenics that is somehow you know morally repugnant? And and you mentioned in the book, I mean, there's a couple of you know you know there's clear cases of you know failures of consent, uh, you know, to sterilization, for example, or you know people who are you know wrongfully uh put in institutions as mental defectives um which itself is a wrong and then they are sterilized which is kind of a, another wrong there are botched operations as you mentioned uh in the sterilization so there's there's there are lots of things that are that are morally wrong that we would all recognize as such um involving consent and such um but i'm just wondering is if you have consent you know, and and it's not, you know, none of these other issues arise. Um, is is there something else that is somehow wrong about eugenics? Um, and I I mention this because one of the people you uh, you talk about is uh, I think it's Nicholas Agar. Um, you know, that there are actually morally acceptable forms of, you know, improving the human stock, as you put it, uh, or as as Galton put it. So could you say a bit about the, the moral uh, valence of eugenics sort of as such?
1: Sure. Yeah, you're certainly right that there are many uh, dimensions to – the ethics of eugenics and concerning consent and bodily interference and, um, you know, wrongful classification and, and so on. And uh, there is some virtue to the idea of let's abstract away from those and, and try and get at, at, you know, I don't know if we'd want to call it, you know, the pure version of eugenics or, you know, the best case scenario for eugenics. What, you know, what would we say about about that? Is there still some kind of underlying moral uh, problem? Um, and I, I guess, you know, my answer is, yeah. In principle, there may well be forms of eugenics that are, if you like, less problematic or you know, m- m- free of uh, all the complete taint of that eugenics has taken on historically. But I'm pretty wary about jumping down into that into that sort of uh, end of the pool too quickly. Partly because I think the lesson of the history is that that's That's exactly how the founders of eugenics thought about their initial project. Um, They thought about it as being morally unproblematic and they didn't see any problem, for example, in thinking um, uh, of certain kinds of people as being unfit. So, for example, there was no problem uh, at all in thinking uh, about people who uh, were uh, born into impoverished families. They were called paupers. And the problem was pauperism that they gave rise to. And the idea was that we could solve the problem of pauperism in society, of poverty, uh, by sterilizing uh, people in poor families. Now, you know, now we might say, for the most part, there, I, I believe actually there's still people who think that's actually still an appropriate uh, res- response to the problem of poverty now. I think there are small sort of minority, uh, societies moved on. But that was really, that was in many ways the ways in which the eugenics movement started. That was not seen to be problematic. And I don't think it's just that, oh, they kind of didn't have the right science or didn't get it (laughs) right there. There's this idea that the first move in eugenics, remember, it's not just a project of human improvement, it's human improvement intergenerationally and by changing the composition of the population. And you've got to draw that distinction between the fitter and the less fit kinds of people. And then you've got to put some flesh on those bones. And what the lesson of history is, I think, that we will go wrong almost certainly very early in this process of trying to figure out, for example, who the fit and who the unfit um, are, are there. So I think that it's not that I would say you couldn't do it in principle, that there wouldn't be a pure sort of version. But at the very in the very project of starting to think about you know, better and worse kinds of people, um, the lesson of history is that we go wrong quickly, very easily. I think, for example, today, and uh, I think Nick Agar, at least at one time, uh, was certainly what I think of as sort of in the space of, you know, amongst a cluster of philosophers uh, in uh, bioethics and moral philosophy, who are very kind of pro-eugenic, they're very willing to, and, and they still are, are uh, willing to explore this pro-eugenic sort of space, look at the you know, forms of eugenics that, you know, we could actually endorse or maybe that we should uh, endorse. And I think the way that's panned out in terms of, um, you know, the sort of concrete realities, you get views that, for example, you know, you associated with somebody like Julian Savulescu, uh, one of the people in this cluster I've just had some engagement uh, with in an article that's just out in mind, um, that, you know, the idea that, you know, parents have an obligation to create the you know, uh, best children they can. Uh, this principle he calls procreative beneficence that's gotten a lot of attention in the literature. And there's very quickly drawn the conclusion that uh, parents have a an obligation to create children who are disability-free. And what I've been interested in in this context is interrogating that very simple-sounding move from that general sort of premise, you know, that's cast in terms of, you know, more well-being to therefore less disability um, and I try to argue that actually it's very problematic inference to make in light of the empirical uh, literature on well-being and disability, and there's a variety of philosophical moves on that front. So even in cases now when I think people are trying themselves to make the best case for a, a, you know, a kind of clean version of eugenics, it ends up repeating some of those errors uh, from the beginning. They might be you know, new manifestations, but it's the same root problem that it's very difficult to make good on this promise of distinguishing between, you know, the good sorts of people and the bad sorts of people to use the language that, that Galton was using early on for those f- to to f- sort of fill human stock in future generations.
0: Okay. I mean, th- th- I, I, I would assume, I mean, just to kind of continue with the question, uh, you know, breeding out the, um, the Huntington's gene, for example, which is a fairly, fairly simple thing to do, as opposed to, you know, poverty. (laughs) Um, uh, It seems that nothing, nobody, it would be odd to say, well, no, we should not do that, even if we had the power to do it. Um, I mean, that, that seems to be something that is a clear cut I would argue, or one might argue, that that's a clear-cut case of improving, you know, the human stock in a certain way. It's not that we have to treat those people who have Huntington's uh, in a uh, in a poor manner or not, or, you know, not get their consent or anything like that. So, you know, setting that aside, but, you know, Ceteris Paribus, uh, if... There, you know, if the, if the Huntington's gene could be eradicated, one might say, well, uh, that would be a, a good thing, right? Or no? Is, or is that just a slippery slope to all these other sorts of things And we're not, we're just not able to distinguish, you know, good people versus bad people in any way that might not be morally problematic?
1: No, I, I think we could I, – I think you're right that we could draw that distinction and say, certainly in principle, that would be a good thing. Another example that people often bring up in this context is uh, Tay-Sachs, uh, which involves, you know, up to – you know, one of, one of up to 100 mutations on chromosome 15. And for the most part, uh, certainly the infantile forms, it gives rise to very short, um, medically deeply challenged uh, lives – uh, with a variety of neurological uh, impairments that are regarded typically as quite severe, um, and uh, again, I think the sentiment that wouldn't you know wouldn't human life be better if we didn't have taste sex? I think I think very few people would say no, no, no. Let's have more of that. Um, but again, once we move to questions of well, how would you? implement this and what would this mean i mean it might be that those two cases uh and it's interesting because one involves a dominant and one involves a recessive gene and so on uh, uh, you know and they're both incredibly uh give rise to un- very undesirable sorts of traits but one important interesting difference is that huntington's is typically as you know late onset and so there are existing people who carry the gene for it and there are questions about how Various forms of genetic testing of them and decisions they make about their own autonomy and family life and so on are, are impacted by policies we would introduce now. And this actually is relevant when we start to think about eugenics in, in practice, moving beyond just, you know, in principle, couldn't this be a good thing? Don't Can't we agree on this ground and get over that first hurdle that I was describing, first moral hurdle of dis- distinction between the sort of fit and unfit? Because if you take a case, for example, that's perhaps... You know, it's not that these are uh, not realistic cases, but a case that would have much more sort of impact and is is much more central to actual uh, screening practices. Now, take a case like trisomy twenty one, uh, which is the condition that's associated with uh, strongly with Down syndrome, and there's widespread prenatal screening for it. Um, any policy that you're going to introduce now is going to infect uh, affect a whole community of people who have. Down syndrome now and the way they're viewed. So another aspect of this, once you draw that distinction and introduce medical and social policies on the basis of this distinction between better and worse sorts of people is you're going to be expressing something about exactly what might be up for debate, but something and something negative about people who have that condition now. And that has been the reaction of people for the most part Within the down syndrome community of you know the ongoing sorts of practices to get rid of Down syndrome again from the outside, we might think well wouldn 't it be better if the world didn 't have down syndrome that 's not the view of many people with Down syndrome and many people who parent uh, with children with down syndrome that 's one of the things that I learned, and it was a real shift for me coming at this you know, from this abstract philosophical standpoint if you like, to being able to share experiences with people in our community who, who had this standpoint. So this connects to the sort of standpoint eugenics or standpoint disability perspective that pervades the thinking that's manifest in the book. So I don't I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah it does. Um well let me um
1: so, so just to add another dimension to this, I mean the other thing that you might think of is you might think well surely human I mean, if we agree that human improvements is a good thing uh, over generational time I'm not opposed to that so you know not am anti enhancement um, you know you know how else could we get it so you take a sort of analogy you know um you know look wilson are you going to be against doing things like removing lead from playgrounds you know because lead you know when kids get lead on their hands and they absorb it they uh, often end up with some kind of neurological damage and that leads to mental impairment so you 're saying you know you know we don't want to you know we don 't want to distinguish between different kinds of people and stigmatize people or subhumanize them or something like that um, so you know and i 'm not tied to it being a biological intervention that you know it could be an environmental one that causes this change over generational uh time or in developmental time for that matter um you know, uh, or vaccination against polio, right? Wouldn't it be better if we didn't have people who had polio? I agree with that. But now think about, you know, what the way you're going to implement that now is, you know, it's not all playgrounds. It's, you know, playgrounds in, you know, rich kids areas, or it's only people from, you know, who can pay for it, who get the polio vaccination. We're going to, you know, implement a, a social policy on that basis. Now you've kind of got this the, at the implementation stage, for whatever reason you 've now got this sort of distinction between the you know the haves and the have nots and you 're reinforcing a kind of uh, difference there and I tend to think that 's the way in which a lot of um, the eugenic sorts of invention uh, interventions have gone, so even when you 're agreeing on a desirable sort of goal and an aim in terms of the sorts of people you want to populate future generations, when you turn to the actual implementation you 've got another morally problematic um, dimension when it isn't applied sort of uh, universally. So what I'm saying is that if you could have a a regime of human improvement that was in the appropriate kind of sense, um, you know, um, egalitarian or treating each person fully as a person, then that's much less problematic than the forms that have actually been in place and I think still continue to be in place, which still rest on this sort of distinction either at the more abstract uh, conceptual uh, level or at the implementation level of distinguishing between two sorts of people who are on different sides of of that intervention.
0: Okay. So um, one of the, you know, you, you, you have a table and discuss a number of different eugenic traits. You mentioned, uh, you know, poverty, which kind of strikes, you know, us maybe today is an odd thing to think of as something that you breed out. Um, but there is this idea, as you've mentioned a number of times between, you know, the fit and the less fit and the, you know, the good humans and the, and the bad humans, or at least the good traits, the bad traits. Um, and this seems to be something that is just kind of with us. Um, uh, could you, could you explain a bit about this, you know, what, what you call difference between just variation, of between humans and then uh, negatively marked differences.
1: Yeah, sure. So one of the things that I talk about in the in the middle of the book. So the middle part of the book is concerned with what I call the the social mechanics of of eugenics. How does it sort of? How do you go from idea to you know actually maintaining a you know a sort of set of eugenic policies or a eugenic a regime? How do you put this into into, into practice? And um, in that. In that suite of chapters I've got a couple of chapters that are on what I call the puzzle of marked variation and I think the puzzle is pretty easy to state and it 's this that you know there there's an infinite amount of variation in in human populations um, that's in some sense the nature of the beast you know we vary with respect to how many hairs we have on our head we vary with respect to exactly how long to the nearest you know, microcentimeter uh, our hands are or our arms are or our legs are, and we could line people up and we could do statistics on, on the distribution of, of where people stood with respect to, you know, potential infinity of, of traits. So the idea is that, if you like, ontologically, variation is everywhere. But epistemically, in terms of what we notice, we only pick up on certain kinds of variation. And the puzzle is, you know, why is there that sort of mismatch or what's the basis for, you know, the, the restriction to the certain kinds of things that we mark as variation that's worth paying attention to? And obviously, the connection with eugenics here is the ones that in the eugenic context that we pay attention to are the ones that you, you know, the traits that you might want to sterilize on the basis of, or you might want to deny people uh, admission to your country uh, through your immigration policy restrictions, because of country of origin, or because of their putative feeble mindedness or mental deficiency, or, um, you know, failing to pass some kind of genetic test or uh, having some kind of uh, transmissible disease like HIV, for example. Um, so uh, I was just interested in this as a general issue. What's the bait, you know, what's, you know, is there a, how do we think about this this problem of or this puzzle of marked uh, variation? Um, and uh, so I see it as quite a general sort of problem that's got a particular connection to eugenics and disability. And part of the way in which I came to think about it was through an interaction, you know, maybe about 10 years ago uh, with the disability study scholar uh, Leonard Davis and particularly through his book Infor- Enforcing Normalcy, where it's been very influential and widely read, and I think rightly so. It's a great book. Uh, but early in the book he takes a, he, I mean, the term puzzle of um, mark variation, that's my little <laughs> you know, moniker for for something. Uh, uh, but essentially he's talk- I see him as talking a- about this. His claim is in a sort of Foucauldian tradition uh, that you disability was itself socially constructed in the nineteenth century through the eugenics movement uh, I mean if you put it in these stark Fukodian sorts of terms, you say you know disability was sort of created you know almost at a moment you know uh, in that sometime in the late nineteenth century through a particular set of social practices and ideas institutions uh, then and before that it didn't exist and, and part of what he the claim he makes in in um laying out this idea is that the idea of normalcy itself is quite a new notion that's tied up in that same period you know somewhere between 1840 and and 1900 and it's tied up particularly with the development of statistical techniques and the idea of norming individuals locating individuals somewhere in what we now call a normal uh, distribution of of traits Um, and it's certainly true that those techniques and those ideas Uh, Those set of practices associated with eugenics all developed at that time. But I was always unsatisfied with this particular account, and maybe I'm dissatisfied more generally with this kind of social constructivist move in other areas, I'm not sure. But in this context, it didn't make a lot of sense to me that this kind of normativity and this norming of individuals was such a recent thing. And it partly comes from my philosophy background where I thought, no, hang on, we've been talking about norms, and sort of sorts of individuals and kinds of individuals and fitting them into these uh, sort of uh, categories and distributions uh, way before we had the particular mathematical statistical techniques for representing them and the particular words like eugenics and categories like moron and imbecile and so on, which all developed uh, later. And so I was interested in trying to probe a bit deeper. So part of it, it, you know, the bigger picture here, and this is maybe where it comes back to my... Um, background in cognitive science and philosophy of mind a little bit more is that I, you know, I tend to think that we need to think a lot more about the connections between the cognitive, biological and social sciences, what I've um, uh, previously called the fragile sciences, um, in order to make progress on any one of those in particular. So of course, there's a lot of good work that's done just in cognitive science or just in philosophy of biology uh, within that kind of silo. But for quite a while now, maybe 15 years or so, I've been crossing between those sorts of boundaries. And so, for example, in the work I referred to early on when I talked about individualism in the philosophy of mind, I also started to pursue that theme much more into the biological sciences. So I was interested in le- levels of selection and the nature of species as individuals and a whole suite of themes there. And in recent work, I've been pursuing that much more in the in the social sciences as well. So... Given that background, it made sense for me to think about this puzzle of mark variation from that perspective and think about, well, shouldn't we think about it not just in terms of you know, the development of particular sorts of social structures and you know, the kind of investigation that people in the social sciences might do or uh, humanities? Uh, but we should also think about the kinds of um, cognitive structures that we have that interact with social structures in various ways to bring about these longer term sorts of. Uh, changes so that 's the way I start to think about um, the you know in some sense the origins of normalcy not that not that well we just have some basic you know innate dispositions in thinking about the sorts of people there are, but rather we you know there 's a whole bunch of you know uh, cognitive structuring that we have that interacts with with our social environment, and it 's that interaction between the two of them that give rise to uh, what ends up being something like uh, eugenics down the the track and you know, marking the, you know, this vast amount of uh, human variation there is in particular sorts of ways in terms of there being, you know, better sorts of people and worse sorts of people.
0: Well, there's definitely a, you know, us-them sorting that that pretty much is ubiquitous. It seems to always be going on, um, whether that's all, and I suppose, I mean, you mentioned that, we, you know, as we sort ourselves, there's a kind of a normative uptake to that, Um um, is, you know, is any kind of sorting going to have this normative aspect that leads to eugenic thinking?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. you know, I wouldn't want to sound that uh, fatalistic <laughs> about it. But you're, you're right. I mean, I think so, so the way I kind of approach it in this part of the book is I, I um, talk about uh, there being this um, cognitively mediated normativity. And so I take the idea that Uh, I I use a a kind of analogy uh, from the developmental literature and the idea that we have what has sometimes been called these like-me detectors uh, that you can find very early in uh, infancy um, and uh, it looks as though uh, there's been a fair bit of discussion of this recently where some of these results have been uh, uh, sort of a, a challenge, but I'm not interested in going through rehearsing that right here. Uh, but I took that idea to say, well, I think we've got something like that. We've got what I call you know, like us detectors. Um, but for those to, those to work is, and that makes sense. So this partly came out of work that I was doing on kinship, uh, separately. So often when I start off down a different pathway, I think is independent, it kind of gets roped back into something else. I've worked on you know, five years before or in another part of my brain somewhere. Um, and, uh, it's a po- it's a very positive thing to be able to f- you know, figure out who are the people who are sort of uh, like us, and we can see ourselves as being a member of a group that they constitute. Whether it's a family group, or it might be a nation, or somewhere in between. Um, uh, but the flip side of that is that there are those who aren't like us. <laughs> if we've got a way to detect those who are like us, the flip side is they're going to be there is going to be this us and them sort of uh, thinking. And I think historically that's been quite prevalent. But here the big caution is hang on, hang on, hang on, you know, let's stop here. I'm not saying um, that uh, we've you know we've got something inbuilt uh, in us that makes us xenophobic, for example. Because you know the question is how do we build up that us category? What's the you know we can only do that through social the kind of social scaffolding that's that we are already born into, that's already there as a result of you know what's happened previously in human history. And this might be the grounds for a bit more sort of optimism um, because we, you know, we've got a lot of, there's a lot of contingency uh, in what goes into that and there's potentially a lot of control that we can uh, exercise that so that we think about the us here in different kinds of ways because it's not as though uh, the way in which, you know, according to me, these like us detectors, I mean, they can't really operate without there being a lot of socially constructed environment out there already. And so this is a sense in which I'm trying to offer what I call a um, Psychosocial or socio cognitive I use i think both terms uh, uh, account of um, the puzzle of uh, marked variation
0: okay so you you mentioned also uh earlier Savulescu, or I, I believe it was him uh and probably others as well the principle of procreative beneficence right that that parents have a moral obligation to give their off screen the best chance that they have it, at at a good life or the best kind of life um and you you call this the sort of the same eliminativist logic as old school eugenics right there's no uh it 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 carries forward the same sort of thinking of uh, you know, before we had sterilization and, and other uh, other practices, now we have genetic testing, we have selective abortion, um, and this new genics, as you, as you also put it, it just reduces that to a matter of individual choice, right? Whether they're going to have the genetic testing and select certain embryos over others, uh, or determine that the fetus is of a one sex or the other or in some sense and then abort the one that's undesirable um so i guess this for me you know in in my own reading about autonomy and things like that i was thinking uh if newgenics involves these very individual choices a lot of these choices are choices that that are up to women in a way i mean selective abortion i mean ideally one would want uh one would want choices to be uh, made within a family situation or something like that but i mean ultimately as we as we know from you know wars over over abortion and pro-life and pro-choice uh you know this it it the whole idea of eugenics and, and new seems to lead to certain difficult issues between the fight for women to make certain choices, um, depending on, you know, exercising their own autonomy. And you, you don't really, you know, this is not something that you go into in detail. So, you know make of it what you will but for me there was a very interesting intersection between those two issues once you got to the idea that uh now we're at a at a in a regime of individuals being able to do testing individuals making certain choices about which fetuses they want to bring to term and which they don't and that seems to intersect very directly with these other issues for, for feminism, right? So I was just wondering if you could say something about how you see that intersection.
1: Okay. I think I can say some things, or how satisfactory they are, or maybe another matter. Um, so, you know, the, the context of, of this is, is, you know, what Troy Duster, the sociologist who's worked um, extensively on eugenics, has called the backdoor to eugenics. Right, the idea that eugenics, you know, can come in uh, not through the front door of state legislation and, you know, for example, explicit um, uh, sterilization uh, or um, other regulatory uh, laws imposed by the state, but through individual individual choice. And it's certainly true that for some people, the real problem with eugenics has got to do with state policies and uh, forcing people to uh, do certain sorts of things or imposing. Bodily intervention on particular sorts of individuals. So, um, for some people who are perhaps say more libertarian in their leanings, that's really where you know the real problems with eugenics are. And clearly, I'm not in that camp. I think the problem there's a whole variety of problems. They don't all go away with that. So, in this in this realm of individual choice, which is the one that we are largely in uh, now, in terms of things like prenatal screening and the uses of uh, IVF and other technologies. Um, I think there are still significant issues that come up. And some of those, I think you're right, come up particularly uh, for women, and they are certainly uh, feminist issues that both men and women uh, should uh, care a lot about. And there are, I think, some tensions and conflicts in terms of, um, you know, trying to walk your way through what's a potential sort of minefield here. So, for example... Um, if there's a concern uh, about uh, the use of prenatal screening uh, to fuel uh, selective abortion practices, so take the example I've used before of Down syndrome, which is very uh, widespread, um, then on the one hand you've got a woman's right to choose uh, in principle on almost any uh, sort of ground and and one ground that's widely recognised is to uh, avoid uh, having a child with uh, Down syndrome or with, you know, uh, a trisomy 13 or 18 would be other sorts of examples uh, for which you can test and for which people do test. Um, so on the one hand, you know, there's that right to choose, and for many people that is very uh, fundamental. On the other hand, uh, as somebody like Adrian Ash, who is uh, pro-choice in that, in using that language, um, also flag is problematic. You know, if you're choosing to. Um, selectively abort a fetus simply because it's um, passed, you know, a series of tests uh, indicating an increased likelihood that your child will have Down syndrome. Um, then there's a sense in which that choice expresses something negative about anybody who would have that trait, because remember, your choice now is it's literally the decision about whether to complete a pregnancy or to terminate a pregnancy, and the only relevant new piece of information you've got is that the the child is very likely to have, uh, perhaps even in some cases, will certainly have uh, Down syndrome. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm, what I'm not saying, and I, don't, I think this is also true of Adrian Asher's work, she's not saying that women shouldn't have that right. It would be, you know, I, I think you're right if I'm reading behind the question a little bit, it would be sort of another way to impose a burden on women to suggest that they're doing something morally wrong or shameful or something they shouldn't do if they make that uh, choice. But rather it's to highlight the way in which that kind of right, which we could respect, still can give rise to problematic kinds of outcomes in the broader context in in terms of you know the sorts of societies that we have and the sorts of human variation that we actually have um, in our uh, societies. And so um, you know, that's an example, I think, of a way in which uh, there's perhaps, you know, a, a kind of intrinsic conflict, uh, conflict that needs to be uh, worked through. I'm not sure of the the way to resolve that. I think that people should understand this and grapple with this, uh, what's sometimes called this expressivist objective, the idea that this suite of practices that we just take for granted as Unproblematic because they avoid a bad sort of outcome, um, you know. Actually, express some some kind of something negative about people with that condition. How strong that expression is, I think, is is to be debated and sorted out. But I'm quite sympathetic, um, and I think that to to this position that uh, people like Ash and uh, David Wassman, for example, who have articulated, and I actually don't think it's been given its real due in uh, in the bioethics and, and a philosophical community and so i have a little bit more to say about that uh more to say about that in in the book the broader issue is in the terms again coming back to the history of eugenics i think that women typically have carried the burden of eugenics more than men it's not the case that universally and across all contexts that women for example were sterilized more or were refused uh admission on immigration grounds more than men it's you know, it varied across time and, and place. There's, a, 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 you know, global statistics can be sort of misleading. I don't think they're that uh, informative, even if they pan out one way rather than uh, uh, another. Uh, but it's certainly true that um, there's a danger that in introducing, if you like, some of these, you know, um, uh, you know, what you might think of as finer points of argumentation, that you could be reimposing new sorts of burdens uh, that particularly uh, affect women or, or that disproportionately have an impact uh, on them as the people who, you know, uh, carry fetuses to term, who are primarily even uh, now in uh, North America, Australia, most of Europe, uh, regarded as the primary uh, care providers uh, for uh, children um, and uh, who tend to uh, have lower levels of income in which to support children uh, with disabilities and so on and so on, right? So... I think we have to really think about the social reality of these sorts of abstract ideas that quickly turn into policies. And that maybe brings me back to where you started with that question, which was about this principle of uh, procreative beneficence. Again, I've talked about a little bit earlier, but it's not just, I mean, it is built on this idea that, you know, parents should do the best for their children, but it's really an extension of that idea to claim that, well, parents have on that basis, If, if that's true, then they have, an obligation to create the best possible child that they can. And uh, that's often cashed out in terms of the idea of well being. And then you know, again, you've got this abstract sounding idea that sounds good, but then how do you implement it? Well, the way it gets implemented through the intermesh with uh, current technologies and ideas that are floating around, and it has been defended this way uh, by people like S- Savalescu and Kahan. Uh, is to suggest that we should have, you know, effectively disability-free procreation, and we should use technology, not, not only in some soft sense of should, but there's actually a stronger sense in which there's a kind of, you know, there's a moral reason. In, in the strongest case, there's a parental obligation to create uh, disability-free children, and I think that move itself is, um, again, as I've said before, deeply problematic, and. Um, uh, I think there 's no quick way to make that move from this general ex- generally acceptable premise to this still quite general sounding premise about disability free procreation, but this is one that will have you know, will have massive influences on the lives of people who exist now and certainly will change the composition of uh, human populations over generational time
0: oh okay um so we're, we're getting towards the end of our time. I wanted to, um, at the very end of the book, uh, you talk about standpoint epistemology, which is, as you mentioned before, sort of where you began when you started thinking about these issues, um, uh, and the whole politics, as you put it, of, of knowing at the margin, sorry, who knows and who cares about who knows. Um, could you, do you want to say something about uh, those those final chapters on standpoint epistemology?
1: Yeah, sure. So the last couple of uh, chapters, after I finished talking about the social mechanics of eugenics, I step back a little bit and come back to this idea, which I treat in this general way in the beginning of the book uh, of, of standpoint eugenics. And so what I try to do in the last part is I try to go beyond the basic kind of intuition that there are, you know, people who are oppressed by a certain kind of, Uh, System or regime are often in the best position to understand at least certain aspects of uh, that system or those practices, Uh, and I, you know, I try to look at how that has been spelt out more, uh, maybe formally is too strong, but more explicitly within standpoint theory in um, the humanities and social uh, uh, sciences and standpoint epistemology uh, within philosophy in particular. So there's a little bit of background work there uh, where. I kind of have a bit of a dig, I guess people could say, at analytic epistemology. Uh, I've never been a very big fan of the S knows the P game. Um, that is still very central. And so one of the things I do uh, quickly is just take a quick look at the ways in which people have treated um, the relationship between knowledge and context or epistemology in context. So there's you know been a big, as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners will know, uh, there's been a big drive in the last ten to fifteen years uh, around this topic called contextualism um, in epistemology. The idea that knowledge is context sensitive in various kinds of ways, and it's given rise to a you know really rich, intricate uh, kind of literature amongst analytic epistemologists. Um, but there's also this other tradition in standpoint uh, epistemology of thinking about the ways in which knowledge and context operate. The position of the knower is crucial, associated with people like uh, Sandra Harding, for example, in uh, naturalistic uh, philosophy of science and naturalistic epistemology. Uh, and what I just, you know, in a very amateurish kind of way, uh, uh, did is just looked at some of the cross citation practices in, for example, the relevant Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy articles and found, really to my shock initially, that there's there's just no overlap between these two sorts of literatures. So when people are doing standpoint epistemology and feminism, uh, it is its own very rich field and has, has big influence. But um, it's not making the connection, and it's not being recognised and referring to, and having the appropriate sort of intersections with this other thing that you might think it should have. Like this is other body of literature that gets, in some sense, it's got much more, much higher prestige, I think, within analytic philosophy, and it's being, it's you know, central to what are often regarded as the mainstream sorts of journals and so on. And, so on. and this fits into, I think, a broader set of citation practices that themselves marginalise um, innovative. Uh, areas of philosophy so there's a bit of a beef about that that sets the tone uh, for this um, if people want to get on a hobby horse one way or the other engage with that that's that's there but part of that's just background to looking at how would you really apply standpoint theory um, which typically in its standard forms how would you apply it over to the eugenics how would you, you know, really uh, make this a more rigorous uh, idea beyond just the sort of intuitions that i've articulated about standpoint eugenics Uh, How would you apply it to the disability case? And there I become actually somewhat critical of um, standpoint uh, theorists here or or the potential uh, for uh, uh, trying to point out the limits of of standpoint theory and dealing with disability. And um, I'm hoping that that engages people uh, in in a friendly sort of way, uh, a constructive way, who are committed to standpoint theory and epistemology and can either meet some of the challenges that are posed for how to develop it with respect to um, disability and eugenics. Um, And it might lead to me, you know, changing my own views about this as well. So it's a little bit less developed ideas that aren't tried out uh, as much. But the basic idea is that uh, in at least the standard forms of standpoint Uh, epistemology, traditional sorts of forms, you you know, it relies on there being a a kind of binary or binary-like opposition between two classes. So in classic Marxist theory, uh, it's between members of the bourgeoisie and members of the proletariat or members of the working class, the capitalist class, and, you know, who are oppressing people in uh, the oppressed class, uh, the proletariat or working class. And I think the same sort of idea is meant to apply over uh, to uh, sex and gender, and also people are applied it over to racial categories um, as well. And I think once we move beyond these uh, foundational cases where most of the discussion has been focused to categories, for example, of intellectual disability or disability more generally, the kinds of categories, the kinds of you know, eugenic traits that populate the history of eugenics that I talk about in Chapter 3 of the book, um things break down a little bit. Um, there are ways in which you know part of the problem I think is that um the you know, there's a sense in which we I think pretty clearly want to say that some of these ways of categorizing people uh aren't you know, they're not real ways of categorizing people. I mean in the extreme case you might want to say, well, the whole idea of feeble-mindedness, which was one of these central traits, it's it's ensconced in much of the legislation. It's the most heavily referred to trait. There isn't such a thing, you know. So if you're trying to organize a standpoint um, theory around the oppressed, the feeble-minded, but at the other hand you say, but there isn't such a thing as feeble-mindedness, um, that's tricky. I think it, 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 minimally it complicates the kind of account that you have to give. And certainly standpoint theory in feminism has grappled with and dealt with some of these issues around uh, under the heading of intersectionality. And so on. So I realize there's much more to be said than I do in the in the book on this. I've just tried to, in some sense, get this conversation uh, going a bit without it becoming, um, you know, what I would think of as a distraction from the main part of the book. I think this is an issue that that uh, people in philosophy and people in feminist uh, philosophy uh, would be maybe more interested in than than what I see as the main. Uh, audience for the book which is much much broader not only in philosophy but across history sociology disability studies um, you know studies of you know of race and ethnicity uh, you know work in not just the philosophy of biology but philosophy of medicine work around science technology society and, and so on uh, so that's partly why I actually rewrote a lot of the book so that that kind of stuff just comes at the end and didn't you know, structure things right from the beginning, just the sort of idea of standpoint eugenics did.
0: Okay. Um, Well, we are, we have time for one question, which is just what is on the horizon for you? What's your next project or projects?
1: So I have recently moved back to Australia after a uh, 30 year detour in North America Um, unintended but uh, very exciting and I'm very grateful for that but it's good to be back and so I'm trying to still after a year get myself established a little bit more I've set up a network called the People Network Philosophical Engagement in Public Life that is based in Melbourne and we have about 100 people involved in that network brings together some of my work in philosophy in the schools uh, trying to get some uh, sort of day camp experiences together the kind that we had uh, alive in Alberta that were very successful Um, So that's taking up a fair bit of uh, time and and attention. It's very exciting. It's great to be connected back with Australian philosophy uh, again in a more direct way. I have just finished a book on kinship uh, called Relative Beings, well, nearly a year ago. And some of that has come out in anthropology journals. And that was something that I was writing alongside uh, the Eugenic Mind Project, and continues this thinking about the fragile sciences that start off in boundaries of the mind and genes and the agents of life, and that's got traces, uh, sort of, you know, staining the pages of the eugenic mind project as well. Um, so that's where I'm at uh, now, building new sorts of community connections, uh, thinking a lot about curriculum, uh, thinking a lot about the diversity uh, of what we teach and research in philosophy. So I'm very interested in thinking a bit harder uh, than I think we have collectively about uh, indigenous uh, philosophy, about non-Western philosophy traditions. And I've restructured some of the curriculum at La Trobe accordingly. So, you know, it's, uh, it's exciting times. And plus, you know, the West Coast Eagles just won the Aussie rules grand final. So how could things get any better? <laughs> what could
0: be better, right? So, well, thank you very much. Um, I appreciate your taking the time to talk about your new book. i uh, it's, it, for me it was very, it was very eye opening to, to learn about not just the history, but also the contemporary aspects. And then, you know, looking at it much more closely than I had ever thought about it before. You've been listening to my interview with Robert Wilson, professor of philosophy at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. His new book, The Eugenic Mind Project, is just out from the MIT Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.